Let's pray together. Holy and merciful Father, thank you for the full forgiveness we have received through Christ. Lord Jesus, you have said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You are our good shepherd, and so we bring the concerns and burdens of some of our sisters and brothers to you this morning. We raise up Catherine, Dave, and Baker Driscoll. We pray that you will give them your peace and comfort beyond our ability to give them. We love them. Father, we do thank you for the birth of Christian Walter Campbell to Amy and Aaron. We lift up Sandra Norman as she has brain surgery this week to remove a small mass. We pray for Sean Walsh as he recovers from an appendectomy. Lord Jesus, you also announced the good news of the kingdom and called us, your people, to serve you and serve others in this kingdom work. This morning we pray for our mission partner, Cedric Moore, with Urban Young Life. We pray that you would keep him in close communion with you and guard him. We pray that you would surround him with faithful brothers and sisters to support him in this work that you've called him to do. Cause him to be humble as he leads this work. The Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. I don't want to go to church today. That's what I was told one of our younger members said to their parents last Sunday morning. It's shocking, I know. To hear that a young person wouldn't want to put on uncomfortable clothes and go somewhere with their parents on the weekend, but it happened. Never happens in my house. I'm sure it never happens at yours, but it did happen. And what happened was uh, that sort of raised an interesting conversation in that house that I got brought into uh, a question, which is whether or not Christians are obligated to go to church whether or not Christians are obligated to go to church. And spoiler alert, the answer is basically yes. Um, But I think we can ask a little bit of a better question and get a little bit of a better answer. Uh, First off, uh, the word church. When we say the word church, most of us mean something like uh, this building, this space, this physical space that we're meeting in right now, sort of the brick and mortar and wood and tile. Um, And that is one way that we use that word. But when the New Testament uses that word, it more often refers to the actual people themselves, the people of God. The word church in Greek, ekklesia, means assembly or congregation. Those who've been called out and called together by God. So in that sense, we don't really go to church. Uh, We are the church. And this building is only a church in as much as it is filled with God's people who are doing God's things. Uh, so do we, are we obligated to go to church? Um, obligation, I think maybe we could flesh that word out a little bit. When I think of obligation, I think of something that I have to do, whether I want to or not. And if I don't do that thing, there might be consequences. So you are obligated to follow the speed limit. 
And if you get caught not following the speed limit, there will be consequences. But you also have a driver's license, and that's not an obligation. That's a privilege or a duty that you have. It's something that you actually want to do. It's something you want to participate in. So it's a duty. It's a privilege. And so if we massage that question a little bit, uh, do we have a privilege to attend worship? To come and be with God's people on the Lord's day and worship him? Uh, That's a little bit of a different question. And I would say the answer to that is resoundingly yes. Uh, Because we worship a God who has drawn near to us in Christ Jesus and invites us to draw near to him. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. We're going to be in the book of Numbers, chapter 7 and 8, just to catch you up a little bit. If you're just uh, joining us, we've spent the past few years looking through the first uh, few books of the Bible uh, in worship and at Sunday school. And the Bible is one big story all about God's plan for his world to fill it with his glory, to fill it with image bearers, human beings who know him and love him, who worship him and enjoy him, who delight in him. But the first human beings rebelled against God. They established themselves as autocrats, self-governors, determining what's right and wrong for themselves, brought the whole world into chaos and ruin, into sin and misery, of which we were all so very aware in our own lives and the things going on around us. That didn't thwart God's plan. Uh, He had a son to send. His own son, who he was going to send to make all the sad things come untrue, to make everything wrong right. And that son came through a family. We followed the story of this family through uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And that family ended up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And God delivered them. This is what the book of Exodus is about. He delivered them from slavery. He rained down judgment on the gods of Egypt, declaring himself to be the one true God. He rescued him. He brought them through the Red Sea. Through a mediator, Moses, he delivered them through waters of salvation and judgment and then led them to a place called Mount Sinai where he gave them his law. He gave them commandments. He showed them what it looked like to follow him, what it looks like to be the people of God since you've been saved. And then he gave them all manner of means uh, to be with them and for them to draw near to him. He gave them a sacrificial system. He gave them a priesthood. He gave them all kinds of holiness codes and regulations and things that they were to do and not do. Uh, And importantly, and this fits into our passage today, he, he actually moved into their neighborhood. These were a traveling people. They all had tents and they were um, traveling and he actually has them set up a tent in the middle of the camp, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. He moves in right in the, right in their midst and he invites them to draw near to him because he's made every provision for them to do so. So when we pick up in our passage today, numbers seven and eight, this actually picks up exactly um, where numbers 40 is, which we read earlier in the service. It might be helpful to know that not all of the events of uh, Leviticus and numbers particularly are told in a chronological order, but they're told in a theological order to make particular points. So it's kind of like one of those Christopher Nolan movies where everything sort of happens, it seems like it's happening out of sequence, but then by the end of the movie it all crashes together and it makes sense. It's kind of like that, okay? So number seven and eight actually happens, number seven through nine actually happens before 
Numbers 1 through 6. But Moses is making a point for us. And you remember from last week what happens at the end of Numbers chapter 6. God has his priest, Aaron, his representative, bless his people in his name. He has, them, he has him put his name upon his people, his blessing, his grace, his peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, grace and peace from God to his people. He's moved towards them. And so in our text this morning, we'll see their response to that, which is they now draw near to him. God has drawn near to us, and we can draw near to him. So we'll turn to our text this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at numbers 7 and 8 together. We've only printed portions of Numbers chapter 7 uh, for you for reasons which will be a little more obvious in a moment. Uh, but I'll invite you to turn your attention with me to the reading of God's word from Numbers chapter 7. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before Yahweh. Six wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then Yahweh said to Moses, accept these from them, that they may be used for service, used in service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites, two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service, and four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath, he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And Yahweh said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings, one chief each day, for the dedication of the altar. And this was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel, 12 silver plates, 12 silver basins, 12 golden dishes, each plate weighing 130 shekels and each basin 70. All the silver of the vessels, 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 golden dishes full of incense, weighing 10 shekels apiece according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the dishes being 120 shekels and all the cattle for the burnt offering, 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs a year old with their grain offerings and 12 male goats for a sin offering and all the cattle for the sacrifices of peace offerings, 24 bulls, the rams, 60, the male goats, 60, the male lambs a year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with Yahweh, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. And it was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So God has drawn near to his people, and they're now able to draw near to him. And there's two particular ways, we'll see that in our passage today, we'll see that we're able to draw near to God as worshipers, 
in gathered worship particularly, and we're able to draw near to God in service. God has set us apart to be his own servants. So first we'll look uh, at worshipers. We draw near as worshipers. And you see here uh, in these first verses that the people of God, now that the tabernacle has been set up, the priesthood has been anointed, the sacrificial system has been given, uh, are preparing to worship in the tabernacle. And what they're doing here to begin with is they're providing for the worship of the tabernacle. So worship is about to get started and they're bringing forward to the priests and the Levites everything that they need to begin the practice of worship. So all these things we just read, wagons and oxen and silver plates and all kinds of animals for the offerings. So what's happening here is they're stocking the tabernacle. When I moved here with my family about five years ago, uh, when we came into our home for the first time, some of you lovely people had stocked it for us. So you stocked our fridge and there was um, you know, toilet paper and paper towels and bread and milk and cheese and lunch meat and Diet Cokes. So many Diet Cokes in that fridge. Um, but when we got here, we were, we were ready to go. And so that's what's happening here. They're providing for the tabernacle so that they're ready to go. They're ready to begin worshiping. They're providing so that they can participate in worship. And then what you see here in these verses is you read that uh, one of the chieftains, one of the heads of each of the 12 tribes of Israel brings forth uh, these gifts on behalf of the tribe. Now, if these are the um, 70 or so verses that we didn't print for you because this is one of the longest chapters in the Bible. Uh, what you have listed, and if you've got a Bible, you can look at it and thank us for not printing that for you, um, is basically a paragraph that is repeated 12 times with a slight variation. So-and-so, son of so-and-so uh, from this tribe brought forth, and then it lists all the things that they brought forth. And it repeats that over and over and over and over again. It feels very redundant, and this is where one of the places where Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, but anytime God repeats something like that for us, uh, it's significant. Repetition is a biblical way of underscoring the importance of something. And what's happening here is the tribes are coming forward as representatives of the whole people of God. Everyone gets to worship. Everyone gets to draw near. Everyone gets to participate in this. Worship is a communal corporate endeavor. So God is underscoring for us that this is something that all of my people do together. And yes, we can worship God on our own, in our own quiet time and in our families. But what he has envisioned here, particularly as a means of drawing near, is corporate worship. And friends, we get to provide and participate in corporate worship ourselves. We have a part of our worship service every week where we give tithes and offerings. We give from what God has given to us a portion of that to provide for what we're doing here right now, to provide for this beautiful building, to provide for um, all kinds of ministries, to provide for gifted uh, musicians and all the things that happen here, the lights that are on in the building. Uh, we get to provide for that. We get to do that. So remind yourself of that when you're writing that check every two weeks. You get to do this. You get to participate in this thing, is, this thing that God is doing. And notice when we worship up here, you, we do have worship leaders. There are people that are leading us and singing and reading, but it's not, it's not a performance. It's not like you're watching us do these things, I hope. But it's that we're doing them together. We're praying 
together. We're confessing our sins together. We're communing with God at this covenant renewal ceremony together. It's something that we all get to do. And this is a means by which God has given us to draw near to him. Corporate worship. We get to do this. What a wonderful thing. So much more than an obligation. A duty and I hope even a delight. Now we see here too they've brought all these animals for sacrifice. Bulls and uh, goats and uh, lambs and all kinds of things. And it's worth pausing for a minute and considering what's, what's happening here in these sacrifices uh, that God has given for his people to draw near. Uh, what's the purpose of these sacrifices? There's a number that are listed here. Uh, first, you see that the people bring forth incense that's to be used in the tabernacle. Uh, incense is a picture of a number of things. It would remind them of God's uh, presence, the God who led them to Mount Sinai uh, through a pillar of flame and smoke that Uh, God was here. It's also a picture of our own prayers ascending into the throne room of God. Uh, There's a burnt offering or an ascension offering. So they're bringing forth whole bulls that would be slaughtered and then burnt, consumed completely on the altar. And this is a picture of a life lived and given over wholly to God, wholly consumed by God and his purposes. There's a sin offering or a purification offering in which the animal would be uh, bled to death. And then that blood would be sprinkled on the altar. In God's economy, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so this sin makes atonement. It purifies God's people. It purifies those of us who are defiled by our own sin. It purifies those who've been defiled by the sins of others. We're dirty and we need to be made clean. And God has provided for that in this sacrifice. There's also a grain offering or a loyalty offering. They would bring forth unleavened uh, grain, which reminds them of the Exodus event itself when they had to bake uh, unleavened unleavened, uh, bread before they went on their journey. And so it's sort of a covenant renewal ceremony. They're reminding themselves of God's salvation. They're reminding themselves of what God has done for them. It's also sort of a a first fruits offering. It's a reminder of God's provision. God has given to them and they're giving a portion back. And then you also see here a peace offering, a celebration of God's shalom, of God's blessing, of God's provision for his people. And this is an offering that wasn't wholly consumed. Uh, Some of it was, but a portion of it was cooked and then eaten as a fellowship meal. So the worshipers would bring this near and they'd eat with the priests and anybody else that they wanted to invite. This was a a whole big thing. Um, And this was probably the only time of the year that the priests got to eat meat when this happened. So they probably liked it a lot uh, when this offering took place. Uh, And it's a reminder that we have peace with God And we can share that peace with one another. I hope you've seen how much our own worship practices are derived from what God gave his people in the tabernacle. And friends, I also hope you see how clearly these sacrifices and this worship points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on our behalf. Because Jesus Christ is the whole burnt offering. He is the life. 
that was lived wholly unto God. He is the one who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the one who loved his neighbor as himself. He was the holy one, and he offers himself up on our behalf. Jesus is the, bur- Jesus is the sin offering, the purification offering, because we have defiled ourselves with our sins. We've rebelled against God. We've harmed one another. We've become dirty, and we need to be made clean. And God in human flesh shed his own blood, hung on the cross in our place so that we can know that our sins are fully forgiven, that our wounds are and will be fully healed. Then you have the peace offering. God has made peace with us by the blood of his cross. And now we as recipients of that peace get to share that with everyone. We get to tell the whole world there's a God who forgives sins. I hope you see why we're studying the book of Numbers. Because it's all about Jesus Christ. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know this God who draws near, you can know him today. He offers himself to you freely and invites you to know him by grace through faith, to trust that this work that he has done to draw near and invite you near is sufficient for you. His work will cover all of your sins, past, present, and future, and you can enter into a life-giving relationship with the God of the universe. Eternal life, an abundant life now. God is drawn near. There's a few more things here in chapter 7 that are worth mentioning. Uh, You'll remember in Exodus chapter 40, uh, at the end of that, which is the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle set up, the priests are in place, everything is ready to go. And the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God, descends on the tabernacle. And it's so overwhelming that Moses can't enter in. He's got to wait outside. But then notice what happens here at the end of chapter 7. Moses went into the tent of meeting. He's able to enter in. It says he goes in to speak with the Lord, but he hears God speaking to him. And when we draw near to God in worship, particularly corporate worship, where the word is preached and the sacraments are administered, where the scriptures are read, God speaks. God has spoken through his scriptures and his spirit, and he is still speaking. He speaks words to us through worship of encouragement and challenge and conviction, words of transformation, because he is conforming us more and more into the image and likeness of his own son, the Lord Jesus. And so we can experience the very voice of God in gathered worship. Then there's one last little note here in chapter 7. Uh, God is reminding Moses about the arrangement of some of the furniture in the tabernacle. So there's different rooms in the tabernacle, uh, sort of increasing levels of holiness as you move through them. Uh, and only certain people can go into certain of those rooms, only the high priest, only at certain times in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. And then there's another holy place. And uh, he mentions here that there's some things in there. There's some bread. There's some uh, 12 loaves of bread, and there's a lamp. There's a menorah. 
And God says, make sure that the lamp is facing a particular way so that it shines on the bread. There's a lot of symbolism here. The bread represents the 12 tribes of Israel. It represents God's uh, blessing and the flourishing of God's people. The light represents uh, God himself shining on his people. There's beautiful imagery here. But I also want you to think about this. If you go into someone's house and there's bread on the table and the lights are on, somebody's probably home. And so this is a constant reminder to God's people that he is always home, that he is always available to them. He is drawn near and we can always draw near to him in faith. He's never distant to us in Christ by his spirit. He's actually taken up residence in the gathering of his people. And so friends, I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but God is closer to you than your own skin. He's in you and he's with you and he's beside you and he's leading you and he's guarding you and he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. He's always at home. We teach our kids in the children's ministry that God is always with John. So as soon as I can look at my hand, I can remember that he's always with me. That's such a beautiful thing. We teach it to our kids, but I say it to myself all the time. God is always with you. He's drawn near in Christ. It's an amazing thing. So we draw near as worshipers in worship, uh, but we also see, and this is in chapter 8, the rest of chapter 8, that we draw near as servants. We draw near to serve God, and serving God is actually a way that we draw near to him. It's a way that we experience him. And the first thing we'll notice about that in chapter 8 is that we're set apart for this service. Now, what happens in chapter 8, it's a whole chapter about the Levites. So the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were set apart for a particular kind of service to serve the priests, uh, to assist the priests, and to serve in the tabernacle. There's a little back history that we're told about how the priests came or how the Levites came to be in this position. And so Moses reminds us again of the Exodus event and what happened there. So on the last night of the plagues, uh, God rains down his last judgment on the Egyptians. That's the plague of the firstborn. It's interesting, all of the uh, plagues sort of represent some god that the Egyptians worshipped. And you wonder, what does the firstborn have to do with that? Well, we worship ourselves. And so he brings down this judgment, and he kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And he tells the Israelites, he said, I'm making provision for you, and so what I want you to do is sacrifice a lamb, and you'll cover the doorposts of your home with the blood of the lamb, And so I'll know that this is a household of faith. These are my people, and he'll pass over those firstborn. This is the Passover. And he said, but those firstborn that I'm passing over, I'm claiming for myself. They're mine. They belong to me for my service. And then God sort of pulls a little switcheroo a little little later on. And he says, instead of taking the firstborn for myself, I'm going to take this whole tribe, the tribe of Levites, in exchange for your firstborn. Okay? So now the Levites are set apart as representatives of the firstborn, representatives of all the people of Israel, and they are this new uh, serving class. They get to serve in particular ways uh, in God's economy. 
So we mentioned, Robbie mentioned this a few weeks ago, the, the priests are sort of roughly analogous to elders in the New Testament church. The Levites are kind of roughly analogous to deacons in the New Testament church. But I think we can draw an even bigger uh, analogy there uh, because Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And by grace through faith, God has passed over your sins so that you are in Christ. His inheritance is yours and you become the firstborn of God in Jesus Christ, which means each one of us who knows the Lord has also been set apart, consecrated for God's service. And God has given his people special gifts to do this. He's equipped us to serve in his church. And there's a number of places in the New Testament that refer to the spiritual gifts that God has given his people. When Christ ascended on high, Ephesians 4 tells us, he he brought us along with him and he gave gifts to his people for the building up of the church to help us all to mature into the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if you look at Ephesians 4 and Romans 11 and uh, 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see a list of a number of these gifts. He gave the gift of apostleship, so some are apostles. He gave the gift of prophecy. Some had uh, unique abilities to speak authoritatively God's word. He gave the gifts of evangelism, of shepherding and teaching, of wisdom and knowledge, of faith, gifts of healing, gifts of working miracles, gifts of spiritual discernment, uh, gifts of being able to speak foreign languages that you didn't know before, gifts of being able to understand foreign languages that you didn't know before. Gifts of serving, gifts of exhortation, of generosity, gifts of leading, and gifts of mercy. So friends, if you're here this morning and God's drawn near to you in Christ and you know him, you have a gift that he has given you to serve in his church and in his world for his purposes. And this is a means of drawing near to him. So I'll just pause and ask you, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? I feel like most of us don't. One of the ways you can get at that is just by asking, like, what do I really love to do at church? What is something that brings me a lot of joy? Uh, I was talking with one of the members of our shepherding team recently, and they said, I just, I feel so, uh, you know, connected to God, and I feel so, so joyful when I'm shepherding people, when I'm meeting with people and hearing their stories and speaking truth into their lives. Well, that person's spiritual gift is shepherding, at least. And that's why they have such joy in that. They feel connected to God when they're using the gifts that he has given them. Also, uh, these are, there's a corporate aspect to this as well. Uh, none of us have gifts sort of on our own for our own sakes, but they're for the building up of the church. Uh, Paul regularly refers to the church as members of a body. So we're connected to one another. We're connected to Jesus and when we use those gifts in the body and we're connecting to one another, there's a, you, there's a joy, there's a wholeness that you feel. That's the means of drawing near. It's a wonderful thing. And I would tell you there's so many opportunities for you to use your gifts uh, here at Covenant and beyond Covenant. There's all kinds of needs that we have that you can enter into. We need people to help in the nursery. We need people to help with children's Sunday school. We need people to teach adult Sunday school. We need greeters. We need people that have good uh, leading gifts to serve on different committees. If you have the gift of evangelism, there's a lot of people out there that don't know the Lord. There's so many ministries we partner with that you could use these gifts to serve. Uh, just here in Birmingham alone, we partner with 17 other ministries. 
We partner with 18 national ministries and we have 22 international missions partners. On October 14th, you can use your spiritual gifts to serve at Christian Service Mission from 9 to 11 a.m. You can let Catherine Hogwood know if you're interested in doing that. There's lots of opportunities here at Covenant in Birmingham. There's also lots of opportunities internationally for you to use your gifts in serving the Lord. We have a number of uh, international missions trips that you can participate in. And these are such a powerful way of drawing near to God. Every short-term missions, short-term missions trip I've ever been on um, has ended with somebody saying, this is the most amazing week of my life. So back in March, I had the opportunity to go with a number, um, number of folks from Covenant, including a lot of teenagers, to Honduras to serve at, uh, one, a place called Forgotten Children's Ministries, uh, where there's a number of children who um, have very difficult life situations and they're being cared for there. Um, And so we had an opportunity to go and serve these kids. We have an opportunity to go into the dumps of Tegucigalpa in Honduras where people live um, and do acts of mercy there and share the gospel with them, share with them the hope of eternal life. It was a very powerful week. And every night at the end of our day, we would gather together as a group and we would sort of process, hey, what went on during the day? What was it like? Where did you see God at work? Because we saw some really hard things and we needed to talk about those. So there was one person, one student, who pretty much didn't share anything the whole week. And then the last night, uh, this person says, I need to tell you guys something. (laughs) It is truth-telling time. I did not want to come on this trip. My parents told me about two days before that I was coming. I was supposed, this was a spring break trip. I was supposed to go to the beach with my friends. And then I got dragged along here and I resented my parents and I resented this trip and I resented every one of you. I did not want to be here. And then as she starts bawling, she says it. This was the greatest week of my whole life. I want to stay here with you guys forever. It's so powerful. And there's a little bit of emotionalism wrapped up in that. I understand that. But there's something that happens on those trips. When you are serving God with his people on the front lines of mission, you connect with each other and you feel connected to God because you're drawing near as his servants, using the gifts that he has given you for his purpose, for his mission. There's one last little portion of this and we'll close. Uh, The last few verses of chapter eight talk about the retirement of the Levites. So they get to retire when they're 50 years old. That sounds like a good deal, I think, except, you know, I don't know what bronze age life expectancy is, so maybe it's not such a great deal. But, but they get to retire when they're 50. There's still some things that they have to do around the temple, but basically they're retired. And I've been thinking about this a little recently, um, just some different conversations I'm involved in. I've been thinking a lot about retirement. And uh, when I think about retirement, it often reminds me of a book I read a number of years ago, Don't Waste Your Life, by a minister named John Piper. And because he tells lots of stories in this book about uh, people who've retired. And the introduction to the book, he tells a story about an older retired person um, in a church where his dad was an evangelist. His dad was a preacher. And this man had been a member of this church for his whole long life and yet never knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd never believed the gospel. And then here at the end of his life, uh, God gives him a soft heart. God opens his ears and his eyes and he hears the truth 
the life-changing truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on his behalf, that Christ died for his sins. And he becomes a Christian. He's saved. He's born again. And he comes forward to the pastor and is sharing all this with him. And then he begins weeping and he says, uh, with sort of mingled joy and sorrow, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. I've lived my whole life living for myself as a self-ruler. Never for God's purposes, I've wasted it. That's a challenging word. And I've heard a lot of men say things like that. But friends, there's a God who's drawn near. And you don't have to waste your life. Your life can have unbelievable joy, significance, meaning, purpose. Because God is drawn near to you. He's given you his spirit. He's given you a mission. He's given you opportunities to run that mission. And we can draw near to him because he's drawn near to us. So will you do that? Will you take him up on his offer and draw near by faith?